spoiler alert, we'll be going through this with the knowledge of all the books and the movies, so just expect spoilers always. If you're listening to this and you want to save the plot twist and the ending, this is not for you. We figure you have all at least passed some of your owls. Welcome to the Time Turner, Harry Potter In-Depth. We're siblings who love Harry Potter. I'm Alyssa, I'm here with Ken, and we're siblings who love Harry Potter. We're doing a full reread of all seven books, looking for foreshadowing, signs, themes, and metaphors that made us think, wow, this makes a lot more sense on the second read, or in our case, the 10th, give or take a few. And now, let's grab our firebolts, dots, and bludgers as we work out who scored and who fell off their broom in chapters one through three of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. This book opens so perfectly. Every time I start this book again, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It's so nostalgic. This chapter opens up with an introduction to the Dursleys, Petunia and Vernon and their son Dudley. We learn that the Dursleys are petrified for anyone to think they're anything but a normal run-of-the-mill family. And Petunia's sister, we learn her later, of course, her name was Lily. She was definitely not normal. The story starts, and it starts with some weird stuff happening. An owl flies past the window. Vernon sees a cat reading a map. That's McGonagall. And strangely dressed people were all around. Vernon has an inner dialogue about how much he hates people who dress as weird. And then we learn that Vernon works for Grunnings, who makes drills. I'm not sure why I think this is phallic, but I do. Vernon's day goes on, and clearly it is a fan-freaking-tastic day for him. He gets to yell at some people, and he somehow forgot about all the weirdness happening earlier. At lunchtime, there's this whole narrative about him walking to a bakery to buy a bakery bun. He ends up getting a donut, but there is a lack of description of the donut, which makes me kind of sad. Um, but then he he walks past people in cloaks, and he overhears them talking about the Potters and their son, Harry. Oh, shit. Vernon is very concerned. He wants to bring it up to Petunia, but he's worried that it's going to rock the boat. So he tries to concentrate on his drills and he leaves at five o'clock. As he leaves, he knocks a little old man down and apologized, which is surprisingly nice. And the little old man hugs him and tells him not to be sorry. We're celebrating. You know who is gone at last. Even muggles should be celebrating. Vernon is rattled and drives home, but he sees McGonagall in her animagus form as a cat. He tells the cat to shoo, and, and I am dead at stupid Vernon Dursley telling McGonagall to do anything, much less shoo. Vernon and Petunia watch the news and hear about more shit going on, owls and shooting stars. Vernon then plucks up the courage to ask Petunia if she's heard from her sister, and we learn that no, she hasn't heard from Lily. She does, however, confirm that her nephew's name is Harry. Vernon eventually falls asleep, although he is clearly concerned. After Vernon falls asleep, we meet Albus Dumbledore for the first time as he shows up on Privet Drive. McGonagall transforms from a cat into her human form, and it's clear that Dumbledore and McGonagall know each other well. 
McGonagall complains about the celebrations and saying that the muggles are noticing. She then asks Dumbledore if Voldemort is really gone, although she calls him you-know-who. Dumbledore very respectfully asks McGonagall to call Voldemort by his name. And there's a very adorable exchange in which they sort of argue about whether Dumbledore is more powerful than Voldemort, and McGonagall calls Dumbledore noble. The conversation helps us learn that Lily and James Potter are dead, but Voldemort could not kill Harry, and now Voldemort is gone? McGonagall asks the big question, how did Harry survive? And Dumbledore doesn't really answer, par for the course. Dumbledore tells McGonagall that Hagrid is bringing Harry to live with the Dursleys. And McGonagall explains how awful the Dursleys are. Harry Potter's going to be famous. They're so terrible. And honestly, what the fuck is Dumbledore thinking? Dumbledore tells her, well, hey, it's better for him to be raised away from all that fame, which we'll discuss. But I think that reasoning is like an 85% lie. We're then introduced to Hagrid, who is clearly someone that Dumbledore trusts. But it's also clear that McGonagall views him as somewhat careless. Hagrid shows up and the scene is very dramatic. He rides or falls in on this ginormous motorbike that he borrowed from Sirius Black. Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Hagrid discuss Harry's scar, our first lightning bolt scar reference. Dumbledore leaves Harry on the Dursley's doorstep with a letter. Hey, here's your nephew. He's yours now. And chapter one ends with a beautiful image of wizards all over the country, cheersing to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Chapter two sets us up with life at the Dursleys, which I think I can safely say blows. This day, it's Dudley's birthday, which makes it an exceptionally awful day. We learn that poor Harry has been sleeping under the cupboard under the stairs and is underfed and treated very badly. We witness Dudley counting his presents and just being a freaking brat, something that I'm sure my sister would say I was like as a kid, and his parents completely enabling him. This year, though, something magnificent happens. Well, not magnificent for Mrs. Fig. But Mrs. Fig, who usually babysits Harry, broke her leg, so the Dursleys are forced to take Harry to the zoo on Dudley's birthday. The Dursleys clearly do not want to take Harry to the zoo because of the weird stuff that keeps happening around Harry, his accidental births of magic, which, of course, they don't acknowledge at the time. The morning at the zoo goes relatively well until Harry meets a really big snake, like I'm talking really big, and talks to it. There's clearly some metaphor going on here, a trapped snake in a cage that belongs in Brazil. And after Dudley's rude yet again, Harry performs some more accidental magic and the glass disappears. Harry's in deep shit now. He's locked in his cupboard with no meat. Chapter 3. Harry's still in deep shit after releasing a boa constrictor. But we do get our first taste at some of Harry's sass. Harry's going to be going to a new school, the public school. And Dudley is delighted at Harry's embarrassment. Which, first of all, how rude is that? Both Alyssa and I went to public school. And at least on paper, we both turned out fine. Dudley offers to help Harry practice getting his head shoved in the toilet. Harry says, no thanks. The poor toilet's never had anything as horrible as your head down in it. It might be sick, which is ridiculously clever. Anywho, this is where the real fun seems to start. Harry's forced to get the mail, and for the first time in his life, he actually has some, which honestly is really sad. We know that this is the Hogwarts letter, but all Harry knows is that it's addressed to him in the cupboard under the stairs which is super specific and really fucking funny for whoever decided to do that. 
I'm guessing the gondola. Vernon and Petunia freak out over the letter and refuse to let Harry have it. Super dumb of Harry, he definitely should have opened it before he got inside. Because he ever tried to hide anything before, that was a rookie mistake. The good news is that the Dursleys move Harry to Dudley's second bedroom, the one filled with all the broken and discarded toys that Dudley doesn't want anymore. But that doesn't stop Dudley from complaining about Harry coming into his space. This also doesn't stop the letters from coming. In the mail, in the eggs, through the chimney, and Vernon is losing it. He cannot stand these letters anymore. So he takes the whole group to a hotel. But even there, the letters find them. Vernon then takes the whole family to a shack in the middle of an island out in the middle of the sea. Harry, upset that when realizing that there's no way a letter could reach them, then realizes it's about to be his birthday. He's turning 11, and his attitude's honestly pretty cute. From the book, of course his birthdays were never exactly fun. Last year, the Dursleys had given him a coat hanger and a pair of Uncle Vernon's old socks. Still, you weren't 11 every day. The accommodations at this shack kind of suck, but Vernon really thought there was no way anyone could find them here. As the clock ticks down towards midnight, Harry's birthday, Harry starts to get concerned about the sounds from the outside, crunching noises, and the chapter ends at midnight with a boom. From the book, someone was outside, knocking to come in. So now let's stir the cauldron and sip on some tea. What are our big questions or hot takes for chapters one through three of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? So the first thing we want to talk about here is the letter from Dumbledore. So you have to kind of wonder, what is in this letter? Like, is, is he sending a letter saying, take Harry and you're sealing this powerful magic that you know nothing about? Is he kind of just telling them, you know, you're going to take this kid and I will fuck you up if you don't? Like, what, what do you think is happening there? Yeah, that's a good point. Really interesting because I can't imagine Petunia would react really well to uh, this is ancient magic and you're sealing it with your acceptance. But at the same time, you can't also imagine that there's this nice letter. Hi, your nephew's orphaned now. Um, can you please take him and you know make sure he stays alive? Love, Dumbledore. And I, I think she'd throw that away. So there has to be a middle ground between he, you're saving his life and and something nice. I think you might be right, but I'm actually going to take the other opinion. I think it's more likely that Dumbledore leaned more heavily on the love between Petunia and her family. We know that Dumbledore thinks love conquers all. We don't necessarily know if he believes that Petunia is a bad person this time. We later find out Petunia has actually written him in the past. And I think it's likely he wrote her a letter saying, your sister has passed away. Here's her son. He needs a home. For the love of your family, please take him in. And he would have hoped that she'd do the right thing. Yeah, I think that, I see what you're saying. I think it might be a stretch because how would he assume there's any love? I mean, all even through the books, the indication is there's no love lost really ever by the time they got to that point, maybe, maybe a long time ago. But I also think it's possible that Dumbledore understood that inherent love that love that it can't really leave no matter how mad you are it's always there right. is that kind of what you think i think so because like we get hints of that later in the series when you know a couple times from harry's point of view we see him recognize like for the first time he 
can recognize and understand that Petunia also lost someone that night in Godric's Hollow. We get a couple hints of that throughout. So I think it's possible that Dumbledore didn't understand the full extent of Petunia's feelings and thought that her love of her family, even if she doesn't realize it, was going to force her to make the right decision and he didn't need to threaten her. But I also kind of like the idea that Dumbledore was kind of like, you are doing this and if you don't, you are going to see my wrath. I have to, I still have to think that it was a threat because when you look at book five and he sends Petunia that howler, remember my last, that sounds like remember my last threat. Remember the last thing I said to you. And I think saying, hey, this is the orphan of the sister that you used to love. I don't think that would tell Dumbledore anything. But but we do agree that Dumbledore seemed to know that by taking Harry, the Dursleys were adding this extra layer of magical protection. Yeah. On the same I, page that he, he had some semblance of knowledge on that. Yeah, I think he had to know. I don't think there, I don't think that he found that out later. I think he made an, a decision to see all that magic that night. And I think we'll get more to those big questions in our next segment. For this one, let's switch over to some other Easter eggs in here. We meet Sirius Black sort of for the first time. We don't technically meet him, I guess, but we hear his name, which is exciting. We also hear Mrs. Fig, who becomes not a major character, but we learn a little bit more about her in book five. And then we get some some Horcrux foreshadowing with with Harry Potter speaking to the boa constrictor. So I want to focus on the Sirius Black mention for a moment, because when you first read Prisoner of Azkaban the first time, you, at least I didn't, I wonder if you felt the same, you forget that you'd actually heard the name before. You forget that so early on the series, you hear Sirius Black mention as if it's normal, as if this isn't a major character you're going to care about so deeply later. And looking back on it, I just think it's so funny to see him mentioned there. You're like, hey, look, it's serious, especially considering we spend most of the first book, we actually talk about him and hating him, thinking he's this bad guy. Whereas right from the beginning, J.K. was giving us the signs that no, he, he's going to be a good guy. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, I read the first books really young. I, I don't remember what I thought if I thought, quite frankly, anything at the time other than just reading the words. But I think you can interpret what happened either way. If you thought Sirius was bad, or I guess you could still say he was there. He gave Hagrid his bite. He's not going to need it anymore. He's going to jail. He just committed mass murder. But um, we know he's the best. <laughs> I love him. He's one of my favorite characters. So it's exciting to, to see him in chapter one. Yeah, it's a great throwback to come back to later. Was it chapter two? Um, yeah, it would have been chapter two, but that's okay. All right. Yeah. We, we can pretend you said chapter two. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> on that note, though, let's move on to kind of, I think what maybe is the biggest foreshadowing of these chapters, which is uh, Harry's relation and connection to Voldemort with the parcel tongue, the snakes, and the accidental bursts of magic. Yeah, I think Harry's accidental bursts of magic are very sweet. When you read this, it feels childlike, but it feels 
innocent. He's being chased by bullies and finding his way onto the rooftop or Petunia's trying to get him into this awful sweater and it keeps shrinking or she gives him this terrible haircut and it grows back overnight. And when you contrast that to what you learn in Half-Blood Prince about Voldemort and when he was told by Dumbledore that he's he's a wizard and he gave examples and and the the manager I guess of the orphanage gave examples of the types of weird stuff that happened around Voldemort that was sinister you know I can make them hurt if I want to I can make animals do things that's like sociopath stuff and you have Harry who truly is like a kid right and you know, not only do you have this difference between the way Harry views his magic, the way Harry's magic is, you know, trying to escape fully self-protection versus Riddle trying to hurt others, but also the way they view themselves. Voldemort says he knew he was special. He knew something was different about him. He viewed his accidental magic as a gift, a power, whereas Harry thought it was almost a curse. It was something he couldn't explain. He doesn't know how he got on that roof. He knows he got in trouble for it. He wish it didn't happen, but he can't explain it. He's not special. He's so ordinary that there's no explanation for these things that keep happening to him. Just another way that kind of separates the two that have so many and so many things similar, but also so much different about them. And what's interesting about that is you can see differences in the way Harry views himself and life really in general with that boa constrictor. I mean, if I was at the zoo and I was talking to a snake, and given the snake only really talked back at the end, but they were clearly having a, you know, some kind of unspoken narrative, I think I'd be like, oh my God, I'm crazy. Like, I need help. Like, someone call a doctor. And Harry, right, and Harry really takes that in stride and is normal about it he's like oh okay this is just you know what's happening to me today and huh okay well cool and, and that's crazy to me and even there when he does perform the accidental magic and makes the glass disappear it's not too embarrassed Dudley. yeah that happens and it's a great side effect but harry feels bad for the snake the disappearing glass is more about letting the snake get away freeing someone from bullies than it is about you know, upsetting or angering or making fun of his own tormentor. Just kind of going back, just goes back to this recurring theme of Harry's magic versus Riddle's magic as kids. So now let's stir the cauldron and sip on some tea. What are our big questions or hot takes from these chapters? So our first big question for this section is, what did Dumbledore know about the Horcruxes, right? So he has a portion here where he talks about how he won't do anything about Harry's scar, even if he could, he claims. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, did he know that Harry was a Horcrux? Did he know the full extent of what Voldemort was doing in regards to Horcruxes? My initial opinion is that he kind of knew. Like, he had an idea, there was a connection between the two. We know he already had some idea about Horcruxes, but that he didn't know the full story. I don't think that in his head at this moment, he knows Harry is a Horcrux. And to defeat Voldemort one day, Harry's going to have to die. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he knew, he knew more than I'm giving him credit for. What do you think? I think he knew the whole time. I don't really have any proof for that. 
But I think he did. I think he knew the whole time. I think he knew the moment he saw that scar that some piece of Voldemort was in there and he wasn't really gone because he couldn't be gone. I think he already had figured out what Tom Riddle as a teenager asked Taurus Slughorn about multiple horcruxes. I think he already knew about some of the murders he's committed on on the the poor people who were in possession of those items that he turned into horcruxes. I find it an easier read if I think he knew, right? It's strange that he would act the way he acted all those years if he didn't know. And when you think about it, in terms of time, it's not that long in between 1981, I think that's what it is in the book, when the Potters die. And, you know, 11 years later, or 10 years later, when Harry goes to Hogwarts, and it's only a couple of years, one year after that, actually, he finds the diary, you know, two years after that, Voldemort comes back. I mean, that's a short amount of time. I think Voldemort had given Dumbledore clues well before the Potters were killed. No, I, I think that's fair. I guess I just maybe rely a little too heavily on, you know, how Dumbledore talks about how the first real proof he felt he had that the whole crux is actually having been created was the diary. I think he tells Harry in or in um Half Blood that he that when Harry handed in the diary, that was all the proof Dumbledore needed that connected all the final dots, which to me makes it feel like he had somewhat of an idea but wasn't fully there. But maybe he knew but he didn't know what the horcruxes were and once he got the diary he kind of was able to use that profile or side of him to figure out the rest of it yeah i use the same example to think he knew right he was waiting for the proof he was waiting for that scientific evidence but (laughs) one of dumbledore's famous guesses i think he knew i don't know that he knew every single one of them i'm sure he didn't know which items were which but i i think he knew about the horcruxes Right, yeah, we know, we. I think we can say with almost a hundred percent certainty that there were certain horcruxes he knew nothing about because we knew like Ravenclaw didn't tell Dumbledore, Flitwick, or anyone about the diadem. So he certainly didn't know everything, but he, he definitely knew knew some things. And you think he he probably knew a little bit more than me, and you know, maybe we'll know, maybe we'll never know. <laughs> right. So the next thing I want to talk about. Uh, and this might be a little unorthodox, is Harry's adoption process. I'm not sure if (laughs) I care about this because I'm a lawyer and that's what I think about all the time, or uh, everybody has this question. But we know that Harry was signed up to go to the local public high school. No knocks on public school. Like you said in the recap, um, we went to public school for high school. It turned out just fine, sort of. No, we, we're, we're good. But to get to public school, I can't imagine it's very different in the UK. You need like a birth certificate. You need records. And I don't think you can just like get a baby and show up and be like, this is my baby. Let's sign them up for school. Like, how do you take them to anywhere? So that leads me to think that the only solution was... Um, that they did do muggle adoption in a legal way, which then makes me think maybe they're not the Dursleys, maybe they're not so bad because that costs money. You need attorneys, you have to go to court. 
you have to uh, fill out all sorts of paperwork and stuff. I mean, could you picture the Dursleys and Harriet like a courthouse where the judge says, and now you're legally a family and slams his gavel and they all celebrate. I mean, it probably wasn't like that, but they did have to go through that effort, which I think is interesting. No, that's really interesting. And I guess it makes you think about the larger question, which is, are, is there any muggle record of witches and wizards? So like, did the potters exist according to the UK government? Because if they didn't, how do you explain Harry being there to begin with? Like, it's not even beyond the adoption. Like, well, who were his parents? Well, you don't have any records of them, Your Honor, but don't worry about that. But I promise you were related and his parents aren't here. So we're just going to take him in. But trust me. Yeah, maybe there was some like confundus charms going on. I do think that the wizard families are kind of operating under the radar that they're not signing up for social security cards or or anything like that. And they don't go to school. I think that's a big a big thing in the Harry Potter community. People talk about that is like, what are they doing until they're 11? Like, do they go to preschool? How do they learn how to read? Are these uh, wizarding and are they are the parents sitting at home teaching them how to do basic math? There must be schools, but I think they don't get on the muggle radar. Harry must have because he was in the muggle system. So I do wonder, did Dumbledore pull some strings to make this easy? Um, or did the Dursleys actually put in some effort and figure it out? And we're all very unappreciative. Maybe. I don't know, though. But, you know, now because of that, you have me thinking, you know, the, the Social Security side, you know. I doubt wizards got, you know, their uh, money through direct deposit. So, you know, how did the money get taken out? You know, they have their money in a vault. Does, you know, Gringotts actually have a galleon per every dollar someone owns? Now I'm thinking of the banking system and how that works. And so you this you just put me down a road that there is no end of. And thank you very much. I'm going to now nerd out for the rest of the day you about can. Social Security and banking. <laughs> think that everybody that is really into the HP fandom, you get too far down. Well, how do they bank? Well, <laughs> how does it all work? I think you just go crazy. I don't think you really can truly understand it, but I think we can appreciate it enough to know that there is a magical way to withdraw funds. I guess sometimes you go down there, but theoretically you should be able, you go to a store and it's cash the only option. They don't have cards I, I don't know but like i said and we're and, going down around we also, and we also know I, I agree and we won't stay on it but i'm just saying we also know that like anyone can really take out you know money from anyone's bank account Sirius takes out money of his bank account to pay for the fireball like that bank account should be red flag there should be no one who can access Sirius bank's bank account when he's on the run from literally everybody so how gringotts didn't care that he's taking money out was ridiculous it could be like offshore accounts the the goblins are extremely protective over gringotts and and the money it's very possible that goblins are like fuck your warrant government like we're not messing with our people's money i mean the blacks are a long standing old pure bud family and the wizarding world the goblins might be like mm, i'm not touching that he can get whatever he wants gringotts is owned by the swiss sure <laughs> <laughs> maybe thing in these chapters that I, for the life of me, cannot quite figure out is if we're supposed to know a wizard that Vernon bumps into in the first chapter. So here's what I'm thinking. 
I think that this is actually supposed to be Deadless Diggle. Now, my reason for this is such. First of all, Diggle is mentioned in the next two chapters. He's mentioned in chapter two by McGonagall, who blames him for the shooting stars over Kent. And we see him in mentioned in chapter three as someone who bumped into Harry in a store and starts bowing to him, I believe, leading Petunia to rush him out of the store. So he's in the first two chapters, then comes back in when we go to Diagon Alley. But in the first chapter, when Vernon bumps into this man and for some reason apologizes, which seems very un-Vernon-like, we get, he gets described as an older man in a violet cloak who very excitedly tells Vernon about how even muggles should rejoice because you know who is gone. Who's the only other person we've heard of in a violet cloak? Deadless Diggle, who would be someone who seems like he would talk to Vernon in such a way. Deadless Diggle. We have all of the evidence there. I've Googled this more than it's probably appropriate, and no one seems certain. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is Deadless Diggle, and Deadless Diggle is mentioned more than like any other character in the first three chapters of this book. Especially for being someone who has virtually no significance in the series of the book. I mean, the other names you see. <laughs> Dumbledore and McGonagall and Hagrid and Sirius Black and Harry Potter and the Dursley. I mean, Diggle? Right. And then, but then be considering because uh, Deadless Diggle comes back. Of, I think he's in mentioned in five and six, but in Deathly Hollows, he comes back at the beginning because he's one of the Dursley's bodyguards. So he's in the first three chapters, which are before us as the reader are really introduced to the wizarding world. We as the readers are still in the muggle world. We're still muggles. We're still oblivious. And Deadless Diggle is all throughout it. And then he's the bodyguard to the muggle world for it kind of through our eyes later in the book. So I don't know about you, but I'm convinced it's Diggle and no one can convince me otherwise. Well, your logic and reasoning just sounds really airtight. And I have to admit that this is not something that I have been researching in my spare time. So um, I'll agree with you for the sake of our sibling relationship, because it sounds like this is your hill to die on. And it is. I agree. Daedalus Diggle. There he is. He was he was in our first couple chapters of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> Alyssa, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but one thing that happened in this chapter is the name of the muggle weatherman. His name is Jim McGuffin. Now, a MacGuffin, according to my very extensive Google research, means an object or device in a movie or book that serves merely as a trigger for the plot. That seems like a really weird name to give a muggle weatherman, especially considering he's talking about shooting stars and owls and unpredictability. Do you think this is kind of a nice stroke of the pen that hinted to the reader that we're about to enter this world of unknown and this, this completely different world? Was JK just being lazy? Or does this mean absolutely nothing and I'm too big of a nerd for my own good? Well, as your older sister, I think that there's really only one acceptable answer here. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, it could be uh, she, we have seen that JK Rowling puts in a lot of thought into some names and virtually no thought into other names. We heard that um, Vernon, for example, she just didn't like the name. So that's, that's why he got named Vernon. I don't know. Like I, previously said it sounds like you've done uh way too much research on this and uh i will agree with you sure it is a it is i'm sure it is a brilliant literary touch 
I'll take the win. One character that's mentioned in these couple chapters is Piers, Dudley's friend. And I want to state on the record that I think this would have been a brilliant character in the movies. He is a ferocious bully. Um, and I think it would have been very interesting to see Dudley around his bully friends. And it was a big miss to not have him, although I guess you could make the argument that he serves absolutely no plot purpose. Yeah, maybe. But I think I agree with you that he would have been a nice character to have, especially I think it would have helped kind of drive some of the similarities. Harry notices between Dudley and Draco later in the book that if Dudley has this bully friend hanging around with him, he becomes kind of the crab and goyle that Draco has. And I think removing him makes Dudley seem more of kind of an independent force of evil compared to having this posse that that Malfoy and the other Slytherins will use to their advantage. Yeah, Dudley in the movies to me seems like a pathetic, sad mm -hmm. bully. And he is, don't get me wrong, but he doesn't seem like the Draco Malfoy type of bully, that bully with an entourage. But in the book, he is a bully with an entourage. And his entourage making those comebacks and Harry kind of being clever back, I think that that adds a lot of character to the characters, no pun intended. And I think it, it wasn't a big miss, but it was a little bit of a miss. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think just in general, we don't get as much of the Dudley-Harry dynamic in the movies. And it would have been nice for the movies to have fleshed those characters out a little bit more like they are in the book. Well, hopefully they'll hire us to be consultants on the remake. We can hope. This concludes episode one of the Time Turner Harry Potter In-Depth. Ken and I are just doing this for fun, for a hobby, but we want you to like it. So please give us your feedback. If you like it, please subscribe and keep downloading. And we're looking forward to hearing from you and incorporating feedback you have into our next coming episodes.